taking up the sword of Christian theology and the shield of apologetics while taking truth into the arena of ideas. You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by BellatorChristie.com. Now join your hosts, Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, as we enter into the arena of ideas. Coming to you from Pilot Mountain, North Carolina, and Ronan, Montana. This is Brian Chilton and Curtis Evelo, and you're listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast. And our word of the Lord comes today from John chapter 14, uh, verse, uh, let's see, 2. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you, and if I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, there you may be also. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And Curtis, here is our 80s, 70s, 80s song. Which show would that be? Fall Guy. What's that now? Fall Guy. Yeah, this is actually the Rockford Files. Oh, Rockford Files. <laughs> yeah. Ah, oh, daggummit. This was actually <laughs> like take two or take three because uh, some of these clips they had... Uh, why was it a little vulgar? <laughs> wasn't anticipating yeah. that. Yeah. It wasn't quite the way we wanted to start off the podcast, so we had to go <laughs> do a take two. <laughs> That's hilarious. So yeah, so before we start the podcast, we want to do some uh, little bit of a uh, little bit of housekeeping and kind of uh, you could say some exciting news plus some really neat things that we've done and and uh, another step in the in a different direction for Bellator Christie. Yeah, so I want to play a clip. Starting next week, we're going to have a brand new intro. And so I'm going to add this uh, to uh, I'm going to add this to the podcast. This was actually developed this is original, um, completely original to Bellator Christie. This was designed by and arranged by TJ Gentry's daughter. And so we're going to play this uh, new intro. It'll be airing next starting next week. You'll hear this uh, when the podcast begins. So we're going to play this clip for you right now. Curtis, I can see you. Uh, you you play the drums. I can see you uh, going to town on that song. <laughs> yeah, it sounds pretty good. I all I could think of is like, huh? Wonder if we could get Ted Nugent to play that live for us. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you never know. Where there's a will, there's a way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, we had him actually come to our uh, our high school back in the day out here in montana he come to our high school and and gave a um a uh, talk and encouragement talk and stuff and so it was always good um and uh, he stayed in touch with the uh, several of the people that are uh, part of that class so that's oh, wow. pretty cool wow <laughs> yeah pretty neat yeah 
so what else what other news do we have uh, a couple of things uh first of all i just want to let everybody know that we have um a couple of new articles fresh on bellator christie we we uh, want you to go check out in fact they're both getting uh, a lot of a uh, lot of views and uh, one is one I personally uh, wrote uh, called Russia, Daniel, Ezekiel, and the Revelation of God. Uh, this talks about the identification of Russia with uh, the King of the North and Gog and Magog. And I come to some pretty startling conclusions, uh, surprising conclusions, quite honestly, in this investigation. And another one that is just just kicking down doors and taking names is uh, one by Dr. Scott Reynolds called the very first piece he's written for the Bellator Christie podcast, uh, Glory of God Theodicy. Again, it is kicking butt and taking names. I mean, it is already, it's only been posted a few days and it's already in the top 11 podcast, I mean, uh, excuse me, articles for the year. It's, it's gotten that much attention. So, uh, I told him, I said, I told Scott, I said, man, Amazing. I said, uh, I think that's a that's a new record, and he jokingly said, "I have a lot of families." So. <laughs> uh huh. I see. So, so there's something to be said for having a large family. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. But I also wanted to uh, let our listeners know. God has really blessed this uh, this series you know, on Christology, and. Uh, I was looking initially at possibly having one of these series, uh, one for one for each season. But I got to thinking, if we did that with as many uh, ser- series as we have, uh, it would take us a long, long time uh, to get those uh, produced. So we're looking at amping up the number of theology series we have, starting uh, the fall of season six. We're going to start having more of these uh, these these theological series. Now, granted, some of the series may not take as long as others do. Uh, it just depends on the subject matter, how much there is to discuss. But I want to kind of give you a rundown of where we've been, where we're going, real quickly before we get started on tonight's podcast. So the first one we did was Theology Proper 1. When we talk about Theology Proper, we're talking about the study of God. And so this one was the attributes of God, and we did this back from and see. Season 4 from July 29th, 2020 to September 24th, 2020. Go back and catch that. This one is obviously the second one, the uh, season of Season 5, uh, the study of Christ, Christology, which we're going through. Coming up the fall of Season 6, that's this upcoming fall, we're going to do the Pneumatology series. That's the study on the Holy Spirit. Some of the things Curtis and I were talking about even prior to the podcast would be things that would fit well in this series. And so this is going to be an exciting series coming up this fall. Soteriology, we're going to bump that up to uh, the winter of Season 6. That will be coming up January of 2023. And Soteriology is the study of salvation. Here's where we get into the whole Calvinism, Arminianism, Thomism, Molinism, all that good stuff. Uh, the study of salvation that's coming up the winter of, C- of season six. Theology proper two. So there's another aspect of God we need to discuss. And this is his existence and revelation. How do we know God exists? We're going to get into a little apologetics there. And how can we know him? And that's coming up the spring of season six. So that'll be somewhere uh, April, coming up April sometime in 23. 
Uh, bibliology, the study of Scripture, coming up the fall of season seven. Uh, and so that'll be uh, one of the first series we do coming up fall of season seven. Homartology, the study of sin, uh, that's coming up the winter of season seven. Anthropology, the study of humanity. What can we? What does the Bible tell us about humanity? That'll come be coming up the spring of season seven. Uh, season eight will have three more. Ecclesiology, the study of the church. That's coming up the fall of season eight. Angelology and demonology, the study of angels and demons. Boy, that should be a good one. Uh, that's coming up the winter of season eight. We're going to have the, the last theology proper study. There's, we're going to talk about the study of God and creation. What are the different views involving surrounding creationism? Uh, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about God's interaction with creation itself. That's coming up the spring of season 8. And eschatology, the study of the end times. That's our last series, the 12th and final series we'll do in this systematic theology series. Uh, that's coming up the fall of season nine. So we are just getting started uh, with this systematic theology series, and we hope and pray and trust that you'll join us along and pray that God gives us good health so that we can get through this uh, in, yeah. in the upcoming season seasons ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're we're kind of breaking it down uh, like a systematic theology just doing it in the podcast form so people can actually have something to go back to listen to it and then also um as they they could engage it um with the with the show notes and with with what's being said on the podcast so they can start looking that stuff up absolutely and like yeah. you said, Curtis, I think it would make a great Bible study for someone to go listen to the podcast, you know, and go through on a weekly basis. Go through some of the material we discuss, and kind of hash yeah. out where do you stand on some of these issues. Uh, I think that would make a great home Bible study. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to get into some pretty pretty heavy stuff when we get into eschatology and, and oh, some yeah. of that. So, I mean, we're going to be adventuring off into into it here with this <laughs> podcast but um not as deep as what we could if we really wanted to and Absolutely. so um yeah it's gonna be a great thing a great time and and it'll all be linked with uh with the right um you know with our with the show notes or with the with the labeling of the episodes it'll all be linked together so we can you guys can all find it so absolutely anyway so we got to get going on this. Our Christology series, um, episode twenty-two, um, part ten of our Christology series. My goodness, <laughs> um, and we're going into the second coming of Christ. Um, well, let's just jump right in. It, it, what is the second coming of Christ? Okay, so when we talk about when Jesus first came. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, when he was born, we talk about the incarnation at Christmas. Uh, that is really talking about the first advent. Sometimes the word advent is used. The first coming of Christ, the first advent of Jesus. However, there are certain prophecies in the Old Testament that speak of the Messiah doing things that Jesus didn't quite do when he was here. And Jesus right. told the disciples that this wouldn't be the last time that people saw him on earth. There would be another time that he would come and he would return. And so 
and as you said, Curtis, we, we, we really don't have time to get into all the different nuances of the different belief systems, but we do know that it's a fact that Jesus said, just as we read in John chapter 14, that that he was going to prepare a place for his disciples, and where he's going, he's going to come back and take us to where he is. So he's coming back. He's coming back to gather the church. There's going to be several different things that happen when he returns. But the second coming of Christ is talking about that time when Christ returns. And um, and we'll, we'll, we'll go into more of the details of what that means as we move ahead in the podcast. But essentially, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the bare roots definition of the second coming of Christ. Hmm. So when we're, you know, I mean... When we see or when we talk about that, we're talking about some of the prophecies that I'm sure we're going to get into those. Some of the prophecies that are in like Ezekiel and Isaiah and, and some of those that, that come along, correct? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So do the scriptures definitively claim that Christ will return on this a matter of uh, is, is it a matter of interpretation? Yeah, yeah, this is definitively something that Jesus taught, that, that he was going to return. Uh, there's no question about it. So we have some scriptures we want to look at. Uh, not, not only this, did Jesus promote this, but this was part of uh, the, the core teaching of the church. So, so Curtis, I want to go back and read John 14, 1-3. While I'm doing that, if you will, how about uh, getting Matthew 24, 30 uh, for us, and um, yeah, let's just do twenty four thirty. So we're going to see in your passage of scripture, Matthew twenty four thirty, that it's a certainty that Christ will return. But let me go back and reread the the text we we had initially, John fourteen uh, one through four. He says, "Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me." In my Father's house are many rooms. Some older translations translate that as many mansions. If it were not so, would I have told you that I am going to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I am going. And so here he tells us that he's preparing, promised to prepare a place for his disciples and would return right. to, to bring them to that place that he's prepared for them. So there again, it's implied that not only is he talking about the resurrection, but he's implying that he's going to return for the church. So in Matthew 24, 30, we see also the certainty of uh, Christ's return. Yeah, and it's, it's here Jesus is saying... Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all all of the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with the power of power and great glory. So, yeah, that is a direct link, as direct as one could possibly get back to Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. He's, he's calling out that prophecy in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I want to, I'm going to turn over to uh, Acts 3, 9 through 4, 19 through 21. Curtis, if you will, how about looking up uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 7. So I'm going to go over to uh, the book of Acts uh, chapter 3. Uh, and so the point here is that the second coming of Christ was part of what's called the early kerygma of the church. Uh, this was part of the core teaching of the church, the, 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 the hills that the early disciples were willing to die on. Uh, so verses 19 through, let's see here, 
Um, actually, let's go back to verse 18. He says, and this is, uh, I think, Peter speaking this. In this way, God fulfilled what he had predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out, that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, who has been appointed for you as the Messiah. Uh, heaven must receive him, it goes on to say, until the time of the restoration of all things which God spoke about through his holy prophets from the beginning. And so, uh, so he talks about this refreshing coming from the presence of the Lord. Uh, he talks about that Jesus who would be appointed as Messiah. Heaven received him until the time of the restoration of all things. That's pointing to the second coming, that restoration of all things that's to come. Let's take a look at uh, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 7. Oh, <laughs> 1 verse 7. I was in 7 verse oh. 1. <laughs> Let's just uh, let's go here. It says here is um, Paul is saying, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so waiting for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. This obviously was written after you know Jesus was crucified, died, buried, resurrected, ascended into heaven. So they're waiting for that time that He is to return. It was a um, it was recognized the fact that Jesus could return at any moment. Uh, also, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 19, uh, this says, uh, For who is our hope or joy or crown or boasting of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? So notice he talks about at his coming. Um, I'm going to turn over to uh, chapter 3, verse 13. Curtis, how about looking at 2 Thessalonians 2, 1? Uh, I'm going to flip over to 3.13 real quickly. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.13 okay. says, May he make your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. And he ends that with a good old hearty amen. So what about 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verse 1? It says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers. Okay, so so there again is that anticipation of uh, of that gathering. Let's take a look at uh, we'll look at a couple more here. Um, let's, Curtis, I'll have you turn to Second Timothy four one and eight, and I'm going to flip over to First Timothy uh, chapter six verse fourteen. So you have 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 8, and I have 1 Timothy 6, verse 14, which says, uh, he says, I charge you to keep this command without fault or failure until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. There again, pointing to the fact that Jesus would return at some point in time. So what about 2 Timothy 4, verse 1 through 8? So it says... Uh a oh, one and eighty. I'm sorry. What's that? Uh, verse one and eight. Yeah, I'm sorry. Oh, verse one and eight. Yeah. Okay. So uh, it says, "I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom." Verse eight says, "Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord." The righteous judge will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. 
Amen. So he's talking about not only the second you know, coming of Christ, but he's talking about bringing rewards with him, rewarding us for the things that, uh, that, that we've done in the body of Christ. And Curtis, you have a halo around your head right now. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Sun is setting in the back window there. Wow. St. Curtis. St. Curtis. Well, you have no idea how 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 little that is. <laughs> so I tell you, I'm gonna look at uh and what Pat you read what second Timothy was that what, what you just read? Four, yeah, verse okay. one and verse eight. Yep. Okay, I want to have you turn to James five verses seven through eight, and while you do, I'm going to look at Hebrews chapter nine verse twenty-eight. It says uh, it talks about the it's appointed for people to die once, and after this the judgment. And verse twenty-eight says, "So also Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for Him." And so uh, they're again talking about the second coming of Christ. So James 5, yeah, verse 1. Uh, 7 and 8. Oh, 7 and 8. Okay. It says, it says uh, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Mm, 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 mm. So I want to have See, agricultural mindset. You understand that early and latter rain deal. It's it's all God's timing. It really is. Amen. Amen. So, so for the last verse, we're going to have you uh, look at 1 John 2, 28. And then uh, I'm going to look back over at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 7 through 13. I'm actually going to back this up to verse 6 and 7, and then also verse 13. It says, um, let me just actually back this up to verse 5. It says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time, so that glorification part of salvation is to come. You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you sh- you suffer grief and various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which though perishable is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Therein talking about that second coming uh, and he goes on to say, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your, salva- uh, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, verse 13 says this, Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There again, talking about the second coming. Yeah. And then to cap us so off, then, we have First John two twenty eight. So verse First John two twenty eight it says, "And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, he, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming." Amen. So what we can find with all of this, all the texts that we that we've read, is that there was this anticipation. 
of of Christ's return that it could happen at any moment in time uh, that it was it was uh, something that the church expected so some people would say that they that the church anticipated it to happen within their lifetime and I think that they probably did uh, now Jesus doesn't necessarily teach that it was going to come but he leaves it open to say that it can come at any moment so uh, he leaves the door open to, to for there being a, t- a span of time between the first and second comings uh, or advents, uh, but even still, um, we really don't know. You know, and this is going to get into another question. We really don't know specifically when you know he's going to return, and we'll, we'll look at that here right. in, in shortly. Right. So, what will happen to the saints of God when when Jesus does return? Well, I think to answer this question, let's go back to a passage of Scripture that has been identified as an early New Testament uh, creed uh, or formulation. This is part of the information that Paul received dating to no later than, most likely no later than three years after the time of uh, Jesus' crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Uh, So this is an early creed. So this is what Paul says. I'm going to go back to verse 13 through 16 because I want you to really get, catch the glimpse of this. We do not In what want, book? Uh, oh, I'm sorry. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're going to go back to back it up to verse 13 through uh, 18. Uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. And Paul writes, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, and a, being, saying asleep is an idiom for, for those people who have died, uh, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. So, for we say this to you by a word from the Lord. Okay, notice there in, the, in, in this translation there's a colon. Here is where the creed begins. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, a shout or a command, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left or who remain, will be caught up. The word there is... Uh, uh, our pezo caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall will we always be with the Lord. Okay, that's the end of the creed. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with something that came from the very earliest church, the anticipation that Christ would return. So we see three things. One, uh, the with the angels are going to blow their trumpets. Uh, we're going to see a command coming from heaven. Secondly, we're going to see the dead in Christ, those who have already died, will rise again from the dead, from the dead no matter if they're just a sprinkle of dust or if they are fish food or had been fish food or uh, no matter if there's just a little sprinkle of dust or if they are full, have a full body, no matter what the case may be. God is going to resurrect them, and what a sight that's going to be to see all the dead in Christ pop out of the graves <laughs> to meet the Lord in the air. Then, he says, it's not done yet. 
So the angels blow the trumpet. The command of the Lord is given. Those who are dead already in Christ are going to rise again from the dead, fly up to meet him in the air, and then those of us who are alive and remain will be caught up. Our peso, or the word is parousia, caught up with the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be uh, with the Lord, and there will be no separation between us and the Lord ever from that point on. I mean, obviously, we, we have that uh, continuation of our relationship with the Lord even now, but uh, there's no separation from God uh, at that point. Yeah. And just think about that. We go from sanctified then to glorified. Oh, man, yeah. Whew, yeah. that's about enough to make even a Baptist shout. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. going to get a little Pentecostal Baptist thing going on here. <laughs> Is that even legal? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. It depends on who you ask. <laughs> so, does anyone know when Christ will return? Can this be predicted? Well, see, now, here is the thing that we've got to get straight in the church because <laughs> anytime there's a big cataclysmic thing that happens um, in the world of any sort, the predictors come out and try to place a date saying that Jesus is going to return here and Jesus is going to return there. Let's take a look at a couple of passages of Scripture, and, and a couple of these are probably going to repeat themselves. Uh, Curtis, I want to have you look at Mark 13, verses 32 through 30. Actually, let's do 32 through 35. Uh, Mark 13, 32 through 35. And I'm going to turn over to Matthew 24, uh, verse 36 through 44. Um, let me know if you're ready. No. Okay, we'll go ahead and yeah. let you go first. Mark 13, 32 through yeah. 35. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, this has got to be remember, good. <laughs> remember, <laughs> this, is my, this, this is kind of in my wheelhouse here of some, <laughs> some, uh, some things that might be pointing to but anyway so but concerning the day of our of, uh, day or the hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only only the father but be on guard keep awake for you do not know when the time will come it is like it is like a man going on a journey when he leaves and and leaves home and puts his servants in charge each with his work and commands the doorkeepers to stay awake. Okay, so two things there. On the one hand, we see that Jesus says that no one knows the day or the hour, that mm -hmm. only the Father knows. And and this is actually um, speaks volumes to its authenticity uh, because of the fact that, that Jesus implied that not even he knew but uh, but only the Father, not the angels, not even Him, but only the Father knew the time when He would return. On the one hand, you see that, but on the other hand, you know, we He does give us signs uh, to to read the seasons to to be able to say that um, we we can know that the time is getting close. Now, having said right. that, let's take a look at Matthew twenty four. In uh, verse 36 through uh, 44, it says, Now concerning that day and hour, uh, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. 
as the days, and I said this kind of comes in together with this uh, reading the seasons, but also knowing the fact that only the Father knows. As the days of Noah were, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, uh, until the day Noah boarded the ark. They didn't know until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way the coming of the Son of Man will be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding grain with a hand mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore be alert, since you don't know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, if the homeowner had known what time the thief was coming, he would have stayed alert and not let his house be broken into. This is why you are to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Now, here's something I found out about that passage of Scripture uh, from a dissertation studies. A lot of criminals back in uh, first century would... Uh, would have busted through or dug through mud brick houses. Uh, if if the house was made of limestone, obviously they couldn't dig through limestone. But what they would do is they would dig a tunnel underneath the house and come up. They wouldn't come in through the front door, but they would sneak in do it, building a tunnel coming up underneath the wall. Now, obviously, if the homeowner was there and anticipated that, that would make a lot of sound, a lot of noise doing that very thing. However, uh, the, the thief would choose a time when he knew the homeowner wouldn't be there to do that type of thing. So, there again, we see that double-edged sword. No one knows the, the coming of the, the Lord and, and le- except for the Father, uh, but there are certain seasons that we can look at. Now, having said that, we absolutely must stop pointing dates and calling out dates uh, is it being the, saying the Lord's going to come on this date or the Lord's going to come on that date? Because I honestly believe that even if a person <laughs> were to have gotten it right, the Lord may delay it by one day just to say, hey, listen, you didn't know after all. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that's something to be said. So the, one of the biggest dangers I think we're facing in the church is the fact that we're setting all these dates. And obviously we see from this that this is something that only the Father definitively knows when the day is going to come. Mm-hmm. We can we can know the season. Yes. You know, we can know the we can know the seasons. We can be aware. It tells us in scripture we can be aware of of the of the seasons of when when this coming is going to be closer. Yes. And just to start it off, we as, as from the cross Till now, we are in the last days. Absolutely. We've been in the last so, days since the day of Pentecost, or actually since the cross, as you mentioned. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, absolutely. And on that note, let me so. read one more passage of Scripture. Acts 1, uh, 7 and 8. This is what Jesus said before the ascension. He said, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So so again, we can look at the seasons. It's kind of like even the whole principle of uh, uh, when Jesus says that there will be wars and rumors of wars, but all of these are birth pangs. Uh, as a woman's getting ready to prepare to give birth, there are those birth pains that happen prior to the delivery of the, of the baby. So, as you said, Curtis, you're right. We, we can we can look and evaluate the seasons, but as far as knowing the precise day of, of the Lord's return, 
we're just not going to know that because Jesus says not even he knows it, but only the Father alone. So there again, that's where we have to exercise a great deal of caution uh, because I think we have given ourselves a lot of undue criticism uh, by um, date setting, Mm -hmm. which is, in my opinion, it it goes against the teachings of Jesus. We shouldn't do that, you know. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, I was listening to Dr. Michael Brown he was stating he was stating uh, in one of his comments. He says, uh, "You know, the critics, the skeptics, and the critics of the Christian faith are really good at calling us out. We in the church need to be better yes, at calling absolutely. each other out on absolutely. these kind of things." Very well said. So, so does the Old Testament speak of the end times? Resurrection accompanying the return of Christ. Does a camel like water? (laughs) Yeah. Do skunks stink? (laughs) And absolutely. Uh, When it walks in front of you. Yeah. (laughs) So we've got a bunch here. uh, Well, we've got about uh, five here we'll look at. There could be many, many others. I'm going to look at Isaiah 26, 19. Curtis, would you look up oh, Daniel? Man, I was already there. Oh, no, no, never mind. Go ahead. Go ahead. You, you go right there. Let me turn to Daniel uh, 12, 2. Go ahead and read then uh, Isaiah 26, 19 for us. It says, Your dead shall live, and their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake, sing for joy. For, you, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So, clear picture, clear picture of the resurrection. Uh, I, I don't see how you get around that. Uh, this is the reason, probably, I believe that the the uh, Sadducees didn't accept any writings outside of the first five books of Scripture. But now, I do think that there are uh, implications even in the first five books that speak of resurrection. Uh, but that's neither here nor there. But uh, but here we see a clear picture of resurrection. In the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 12, verse 2, and and Curtis, while I'm here, I want to have you turn over to Ezekiel 37, uh, 12 through 14. Uh, I think that's the Valley of Dry Bones, if I'm not mistaken, but I could be wrong. Daniel 12, 2 says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, and some to disgrace and eternal contempt. I'm going to go ahead and read verse 3. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Two things we see there that coheres perfectly with a New Testament depiction of the return of Christ. One is the resurrection accompanying the return of Christ. Two, well, actually three things. Two, we see that this is going to lead eventually to eternal life, uh, some to um, some some to uh, experience eternal life in heaven with Christ and with with God. Uh, some to disgrace and eternal contempt. We see obviously the antithesis of that would be spent in an eternal in Gehenna or uh, the lake of fire. And then the third thing we see that that the rewards, the things we do in Christ, the things we do for Christ matters. Look what he says: those who have insight will shine. Boy, if there is a clear call for us to study Scripture and to grow in the faith, it's this. Those who have insight will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness, those who are focused on the gospel of Christ, leading other people to faith, 
they will shine like the stars forever and ever. Uh, powerful words there in Daniel. So what we have there in Mr. Ezekiel. So yes, Ezekiel 37. Um, do you want me to start in, in 11 or do you want me to go down a little further? Yeah, you go ahead and use your own judgment. If, you, if 11 is better, just go ahead and do that. Okay. Actually, I can start up. I can start up a little higher. Um, let's see here. Any so this is Ezekiel in a, had a vision. Um, uh, a guy that God God gave him, and he said, uh, "the The hand of the Lord was upon me." I'm going to start in verse one, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many, very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were, very, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Now I'm going to drop down to verse 11. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. And behold, they say, our bones are dried up. And our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them. Thus says the Lord. Behold I will open. Your graves. And raise you from your grave. O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel. Mm. And you shall know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves. And you raise. And raise you from your graves. O my people. And I will put spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Mm. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Wow. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of obvious. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and did you notice the, the land promise there? Now, again, yep. you know, we can't yep. get into the whole... The whole es- aspect of eschatology, uh, that that's coming. Stick with us. Yeah, that's coming. Yep. If the Lord grants us strength and, and enough life to, to finish this out, uh, you know, that is coming. Um, but the promise, I mean, this is a declaration of the Lord that is coming. This 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 just a powerful truth. Uh, right. Like you said, that's it's just obvious. Let, let's. I want to look at uh, Psalm forty nine fifteen, Curtis. If you'll look at Psalm seventeen verse fifteen. Uh, Psalm 49, 15 says this. Um, I'm going to back this up to verse 14. Like sheep, they are headed for Sheol. Death will shepherd them. The upright will rule over them in the morning, and their form will waste away in Sheol uh, or in the grave, uh, far from their uh, lofty abode. But God will redeem me from the power of Sheol, for he will take me. Uh, he's, there's this redemptive power found uh, in in the Lord, and uh, he's going to be rescued from the power of the grave. So let's take a look at Psalm seventeen fifteen. So it says here: It says, "As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness." Mm, Powerful stuff. So just like uh, as Jesus rose from the grave. It says right there, we will be like his likeness. We will be just like him, raising from the grave. Absolutely. Well, and, it, and it's amazing if we really stop to consider it that Jesus, his whole life, is is, is kind of like a a prototype of of what we'll experience. 
So Jesus was born of a woman. We're born. Um, Jesus died. You know, saving the Lord's return. We're all going to experience death. Jesus was buried. We'll be buried as well. Jesus rose again at the coming of Christ. Second coming of Christ will rise again. Notice that after Jesus had risen from the dead, he ascended into heaven. Well, guess what? We're going to do the same thing at the second coming of Christ. Uh, We're going to ascend into heaven to meet him in the air. So our lives are really following in the pattern of Christ, who served as the archetype, the the prototype for uh, for, for what we'll experience not only in this life, uh, but in eternity. Powerful. Absolutely. So, what comes after the return of Christ? I knew that. It's going to have to be that question. (laughs) I think it's a book on heaven. I'm not sure. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it it gets interesting. And here again, this, this, this depends on your eschatological viewpoint, but by and large, most, I would dare say the vast majority of Christians are probably premillennial. Now, now, what version pre, post-trib, and mid-trib, and all that stuff, again, we'll get into all of that stuff when we come to the eschatological, uh, eschatology portion of the, of the systematic theology series. Uh, but just a literal rendering of Scripture, no matter what you do with the tribulation, there appears to be in the book of Revelation, and it seems to follow with the Old Testament prophecies and the teachings of Jesus, that there is a kind of a standard template of what follows the return of Jesus, the return of Christ. And so, for instance, if we go to Revelation chapter 19, uh, verse uh, verse 11 we, we see the return. It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. His rider was called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. Now, obviously, a lot of this is... Uh, is, uh, is um, not typological. What's the word I'm looking? At? Like I said, it's late. Uh, a lot of this, a lot of these are pictures uh, that's being portrayed. Uh, analogies that's, that's being portrayed here. Uh, his name is called the Word of God. He wore a robe dipped in blood that represents his sacrifice. The eyes of fire represents the fact that he not only sees the exterior, but he can peer in the soul. The many crowns represent his rule, his reign, that he has the authority of God, the kingship of God. Uh, the name written that no one knows except for himself, that means that no one has the authority to, to command his name. Uh, because there was this sense that if you used a name in a commanding style that you had authority over that name. Well, no one knew this name but himself, so no one could command authority over him. Robe dipped in blood, this talking of the sacrifice. His name is called the Word of God. He is the revelation of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. Many people believe that those who are following him are not only angels, but actually the saints of God following him on white horses, and people have asked before, well, what if we're in combat? Guess what? You've got a risen body that's never going to experience pain and never going to be destroyed. And quite honestly, Christ is doing all the fighting anyhow uh, as he it, overcomes. I mean, if we, if we follow that same logic backwards, then 
the soldiers would have been doing the fighting against Goliath. Exactly. <laughs> Just saying. Because we're not we're we're not fighting Goliath in that. <laughs> that, ladies and gentlemen, is a mic drop moment from Curtis Evelo. <laughs> Just saying. So the armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. The white linen represents the holiness of purity. Sharp sword came from his mouth. Now this isn't a literal sharp sword. What this means is that he has the power to speak the word and it is done. If you have a person with that type of power, don't worry about fighting because all he has to do is speak the word and the enemy's done. Uh, So that he might strike the nations with it. Now notice there's the striking of the nations bringing everything into under subjection to his authority. Uh, he will rule them with an iron rod. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. This has connotations back to the book of Jeremiah 25 and many other passages of Scripture. He has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. This has links back to Deuteronomy 10, Daniel 2, uh, many other passages of Scripture. Okay, so so let's take this. Christ returns. He overcomes all nations. It doesn't matter what nation you're talking about. Every nation is, is, is succumbs to the power and the authority of Christ and his kingdom. The kingdom of God is taken over. Everything. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter what nationality. doesn't matter what tribe or tongue. Christ is taking over. And so then we see this millennial reign that happens. Now, we're going to get in more into this when we do the the, the, the topic on eschatology because this is an area that I really am looking forward to studying more, the millennial, the millennial reign as to what goes on during this time. I think possibly, um, now I'm not making a definitive claim on this because I want to study this more. I've, I've kind of been under the persuasion that during the millennial reign of Christ, this may be a time of judgment. This may be a time where uh, judgment even happens, where you have the Bema seat judgment that takes place with the church, uh, the, um, the, the, the judgment seat of Christ, where the church is judged for the things that they've done in the body and given rewards at this time. Uh, this could also be a time of, this is obviously a ruling time of ruling and reigning over over the world, bringing the global powers under subjection to Christ's feet, uh, as been prophesied in the Old Testament and clearly mentioned in the early uh, creeds of the New Testament. So, But at the end of this, uh, notice he says in verse 4 of chapter 20, Oh, actually, let's back up to verse 1. The angel comes down from heaven holding a key to the abyss and a great chain in his hand. During this millennial reign, Satan, that ancient serpent who's the devil and Satan, or the dragon that is, uh, bound him, the angel Michael bounds, binds him for a thousand years, throws him in the abyss, closed it, put a seal on it. The seal had the authority of God. No one could remove it so that he would no longer deceive the nations until a thousand years were completed. And then he would be released for a short time. Okay, so during the millennial reign of Christ, Satan, and this is why I believe that it can't be the, um, that, that the whole concept of amillennialism and postmillennialism really does, has a problem here because Satan during this time is bound. 
where he can't bother the nations, he can't bother the, the world during this millennium. So if, if we're in the millennium now, then why is it that Satan seems to be bothering us so much and causing problems as he is? T- to me, yeah. there's a problem with that interpretation, and that's why, yeah. personally, I am a pre, pre-millennialist. Uh, um, so he binds Satan for a thousand years, after which time, notice he says in verse 4, I saw thrones and people seated on them who were given authority to judge. Guess what? The people of God are on the thrones there as well. Uh, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, because of the word of the Lord. Uh, they came back to life, reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The, the rest of the dead did not come to life till the thousand years were completed. This is talking about those who were not of Christ, that resurrection of the condemned, the resurrection of the people who were not of Christ, happens after this thousand-year time period. So this is the first resurrection. And he said, Blessed is and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. That's the resurrection of the saints. Okay, The second death has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him a thousand years. We reign with Christ during that thousand-year period of time. Now, in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, this brings up another thing that happens. Christ returns... He sets up the millennial reign. Then after the thousand years are over, Satan will be released from his prison, and he will go out to deceive the nations at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog. Is this a nation? Is this a person? To me, it seems like this may be a spiritual power, uh, maybe one of Satan's henchmen. I don't know. To be honest, I don't know that anyone does. But Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle, their number is like the sand of the sea. They, this is setting up for the Battle of Armageddon. But listen, if you're concerned about the Battle of Armageddon, listen what happens. They came up across the breadth of the earth, numbered like the sand of the sea. They're coming down upon Mount Zion. They're coming to the city of, the, the city of God. They come across the breadth of the earth and surrounded the encampment of the saints, the beloved city. Oh, no. They surrounded the city of God. They surrounded us on every edge. Are we in trouble? Uh Uh-uh. Listen what happens. God drops the hammer. The Father drops the hammer. And when he does, this is what happens. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Game over. Armageddon ends as quickly as it begins. The devil who deceived them was thrown in the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And then after which you see a great white throne in verse 11, and the one seated on it, heaven and earth, fled from his presence. So this is the end of the physical world as we know it. The the old creation is gone. When the Father steps foot on the scene, catch this. All the molecular material of the universe fades away. It melts before the very presence of the Father. Heaven and earth fled from His presence, and no place was found for them. Saw a dead, great and small, standing before the throne. This is the great white judgment, great white throne judgment. The believer will stand before Christ at the judgment seat of Christ, most likely during the millennial reign. The great white throne judgment happens after the millennial reign is over after Armageddon, 
and and we see that uh, the dead were judged according. Now, obviously, we're alive. We have no part in that second resurrection. This is just for the dead. Death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire, the second death. Uh, anyone whose name was not found in the, in the book of life was thrown in the lake of fire. This is a resurrected form they have thrown in the lake of fire. So let's follow the template here again. Christ returns, millennial reign, Armageddon, great white throne judgment, then new heaven and new earth, which comes about in Revelation 21 and 22. Hmm. So that sets the template up as what follows the second coming of Christ. Hmm. Yeah. Gives you a lot of hope, doesn't it? Absolutely. <laughs> and and I'm, I'm telling you, you know, Christ comes, he sets up the kingdom on earth, gathers people together. Um, is there even a chance people could come to faith during that time? Maybe. I don't know. Uh, you know, possibly, but maybe not. I don't know. But one thing's for sure. When Satan, he, Satan, it, it, all these world powers are given every opportunity under the sun to get things right. But then after the millennial reign of Christ happens and they're still rebellious, the Father drops the hammer. And when he does, oh, heavens, literally, heavens pass away. The heaven and earth pass away. Everything as we know it melts before the very awesome, awesome presence of God the Father. I mean, can you imagine what that must be like? Glory. Holy smokes. Yeah. 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 So this is going to get uh this is going to get pretty interesting. So on the last question here it says we are going to have a series of on eschatology. The eschatology series will be the final topic of our systematic theology series. So do we want to go ahead and talk about some of that little differences and some of that stuff, or do we want to just go ahead and leave that, um, leave that to to that pod or that uh, series? Then we we can briefly go over some of the d- different topics if you'd like to. I mean, we've got we've got a few minutes to spare if you'd like. Yeah. Well, I was just gonna I was gonna start off with preterism is is a is a extreme all-millennial, correct? So, preterism um, most likely would probably be all-millennial. Um, so, so l- l- let's first of all set the stage what we're talking about with millennial. So, pre-millennial is the view that we just espoused here, is talking about mm-hmm. that uh, eventually there's coming a time when Christ is going to return. And he's going to literally set up a kingdom on earth with the saints of God for a thousand years. Okay, mm-hmm. uh, after which time, you know, certain things are going to happen that time, and and it follows that template that we just presented. What we presented is the premillennial model. There is another okay. model by the name of amillennialism. Millennial means a thousand or uh, thousand years. Ah means it means no. So literally, ah millennial means no one thousand, no no thousand years. This interpretation holds that the that we are in the millennium now. We're in the millennial reign of Christ now. That that the church assumes the authority that that we're ruling and reigning the earth now through the power of Christ through the church age. And so when Christ returns, um, that comes at the, the, the end or the conclusion of the thousand-year reign, and then you just enter into 
you know, the new heaven and new earth. I mean, it's a simpler model. I mean, I can see why right. some people are attracted to it. It's a simpler model. The post post millennial view is post meaning after means that we are. They hold the similarity with our millennial in that they think that we're in the millennial reign of Christ now. But they see it as ha- as a, as a very optimistic view that things will progressively. The church is going to work with the culture to the point that things are going to progressively get better and better and better. And as things get better, become more peaceful and and more harmonious on earth, we'll finally get to the time where, where there's such great peace on earth that Christ will return and set up the kingdom and, and bring about a new heaven and new earth after after such. Um, the problem with postmillennialism didn't, uh, didn't postmillennial kind of millennialism wasn't it uh, wasn't it really uh, I, I guess held by the church for quite some time right up until um, World War Two World War One and Two well it, it found favor during the time of enlightenment so okay, around okay. around the uh, uh, honestly, the Chiolism, uh, which is a form of premillennialism, it was probably the dominant view up until the time of Augustine. Around the time of okay. Augustine and thereafter, uh, many people like Oregon of Alexandria, Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, Augustine seemed to ha- have held this view. They held to amillennialism. And so from the time of Augustine in the 4th century forward, you had really two camps, the premillennial camp and you had the amillennial camp uh, during that period of time. And so postmillennialism didn't really come about until the time of the Enlightenment, and it really fell out of favor, uh, as you mentioned, during the two great wars, the two world wars. Uh, people began to see, you know, the world's not getting better. So we, <laughs> we don't Should think... be living now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So now to your point about uh, preterism, so so there are really two main points and uh, two main perspectives in interpreting the book of Revelation. Uh, and, and there may be others, but these are the two dominant views. Uh, preterism is the view that everything was fulfilled in the book of Revelation in the first century, that it's a historical book talking of historical things and um, and that that all of this stuff, with possibly the exception of the return of Christ and things of that nature, but everything prior to the return of Christ was set and cast in the first century and really has nothing to do with the end times. Uh, that's the preterist view. The futurist view is that these things are talking about the end times. It's looking forward to the future, prophesying of things that will happen in the future. Now, I, for one, am a futurist. I, I think it's very difficult to read revelation and apocalyptic literature as if it's all occurring in in that time now could it have been referencing things of the first century of course absolutely um for instance 666 first first part of hermeneutics is is there was an audience yes that that writer was writing to so so to clear that up for people there there was there was a purpose for it it wasn't like everybody you know when John, when John wrote that, was like, well, he's lost his mind. What's he talking about? They, sure. There was actually something he was writing to at that time. Absolutely. For, so, for instance, the the mark of the there's in the in the Bible there is gematria. There's this thing called gematria, and every Greek, Aramaic, and Hebrew letter had a numerical value. 
And so uh, every word has a numerical value to it in the Greek language, with all the biblical languages, Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, all of them the same. They all have numbers associated with the letters. It just so happens to be that uh, that there are two manuscripts, uh, ancient manuscripts of Revelation. One that has the mark of the beast is 666. One has it 616. It's interesting to find that both versions of that trans- translates over into either Nero or Emperor Nero. Uh, so what he's doing is is setting up, and that's why you know that's why it's like you know if you have ears to hear you know the one with understanding let them understand. What he's saying is the Antichrist is going to be cast is going to be like a, a Nero on steroids. As bad as Nero was, it's going to be on steroids. Daniel does something similar with Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth, as evil as he was, would be that the Antichrist would be like him on steroids. John uh, John does the same thing in Revelation with uh, with uh, with Nero. Nero was a bad, evil person, and the, and the Antichrist would be one that would be a lot like him. So even though they're using reference points in the first century, they're still casting it forward, looking ahead in the future at the end times, as does all apocalyptic literature. But now having said that, let me go back and say there were some things in Revelation that were speaking directly to the audience of the time, the seven letters to the seven churches, that's obviously pointing to something that happened in that time. But as far as the rest of the book, it really seems to be a futuristic perspective, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's some there's some kind of quick little tidbits and topics that we will be touching on when we when we get into that. The thing the thing about it is at what extreme at what extreme do we start getting away from being um, true biblical withholdings and we start getting into something that, um, I don't want to say heretical, but, but but for lack of a better word, heretical or a kind of right on that edge. Where, where, do, we, where do we stand with that? Well, the thing I love about Liberty University, I know it's gotten a bad rap, but I'm going to just shoot straight with you. Liberty's a great school. There's a reason why I did my doctoral work there along with my master's degree work there because even though it's given a bad rap by some people, the, the professors there are fantastic. They're world class. And one, But one of the things I appreciate most about Liberty is this phrase that they use. Uh, keep the text in context. Uh, or, or, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let me, let me go back and say this again. The plain sense is the best sense unless it becomes nonsense. Mm-hmm. The plain sense of Scripture is the best sense unless it becomes nonsense. If it's nonsensical, then it means that it's setting up uh, a, a metaphor. Looking at, so, so, for instance, a sword coming out of Christ's mouth. Well, we know that means something else. It's not a literal right. sword. Fiery right. eyes, does he really have fire coming from his eyes? Well, it's talking about something else, like the seven crowns, seven horns, seven eyes, we know that this is metaphorical language being used there, pointing to some deeper truth. Um, but when the plain sense is given, we should really take that unless it becomes a situation where it really 
becomes contradictory or nonsensical. So, so the point behind that is, is we really need to take the Bible, allow it to speak to us, let the Spirit speak to us through the, the words written on the page, rather than trying to manipulate the material. So, in my opinion, I think that is the best way to handle these type of things. Yeah, yeah. So there, we got some, uh, we got some more information out there, and I, we're we're coming to the end of this series. So just kind of let our listeners know what do we have up next for for the end of this. Well, I tell you what, before we go there, let, let me let me do let me do this one thing for for number seven. Let me let me give you four things okay. that. Okay. Uh, you know, there are all these different opinions. There are all these different opinions out there about the end times. But I dare say that nearly everyone will agree on four aspects of Christ's return. And so one is that Christ is going to return. I think everyone agrees on that. Christ is going to return. Secondly, we see Christ's resurrection. Not talking about the resurrection of Christ. Any legitimate Christian will believe that Christ literally rose from the dead. But here we're talking about the resurrection of the saints. I think everyone understands that we're, we're coming to a point in time where even though we're absent from this body, we're present with the Lord, eventually our souls are going to reunite with our bodies. We're going to have a resurrected body. I think everyone will agree on that. Christ's reign, I think everyone will agree on that aspect. Uh, that, that he's going to rule and reign forever and ever. And then Christ rest. And here when we talk about rest, we're talking about eternity. That there's a new heaven, new earth, there's a new creation coming. I think everybody will agree with that. So four R's. His return, his the resurrection, the reign, and rest. I think all four of those things, about every Christian should should accept those, those uh, four things in my opinion. But now going back to your question, what was your question there again? Well, I was just saying because we're getting close to the end of this uh, Christology series. What what do we have next uh, coming up? The next next ones. We have two special. We have two specials. We're going to do uh, one right. on the miracles of Jesus, and um, I think there was something else. Um, I have to look at my notes. <laughs> I know the miracles yeah. of Jesus was one we we're going to do, and we had another one we were going to do for a special. Uh, so we, we're just going to kind of use those two to kind of wrap it up, and then we may even be able to do one podcast with all that material. I don't right. know. We'll, we'll look at that right. and uh, discuss that as we go ahead. But we do have a special coming up on this, and that will wrap up our Christology series. And then we're going to, as we're going into April, this is the. Um, this is Easter month. April 17th yep. is Easter. Yep. And so we'll actually start our new series that we're looking at doing here in the next few weeks on uh, Messianic prophecies pointing to the resurrection of Jesus uh, and the ascension and things of that nature. We've kind of hinted on a few of those things going through this series. We're going to really start digging in deeper. Uh, some of the stuff we even read tonight, we're going we're gonna to open up that vault and look even deeper at some of these issues. Yeah. Yeah, so cool. I I'm so excited for that. Um, yeah, that's probably some of my favorite stuff to discuss because it just it um, it strengthens your faith. It does. You know, it really does. It, it's that it's that helping with the bedrock, and it just strengthens everything we need. So, well, thanks, folks, and we here at Bellator Christie want to thank you. Thank you for spending that time together with us. We value that time. Our prayers at this podcast have stretch your mind in this
place to strengthen your faith as we strive to create an atmosphere of discussion and a reliable source of information. Join us next time on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Until next time, Brian and I say, Hold your own, friends. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The opinions of our guests represent their own and may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. The Bellator Christie Podcast and bellatorchristie.com are protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. The opening theme is the song Crucified, written by John and Michaela Limanis, performed by Crosby Lane and produced by Mansion Entertainment. Be sure to visit our YouTube page at www.youtube.com forward slash Bellator Christie. Also, please consider leaving a positive review on the apps where this podcast is found. We thank you for joining us today and hope to see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas. This is Brian Chilton with the Bellator Christie Podcast, and this is your Theology Thought for today. This past week I had the opportunity of writing an article on Russia, Ezekiel, Daniel, and the Revelation of God. This was addressing a question that I had been given about whether or not Russia was the mysterious King of the North mentioned in Ezekiel and Daniel, and Gog and Magog, also mentioned in the book of, of uh, Revelation. The question was, who exactly is it that is Gog and Magog? Well, one of the things, while, we, while this uh, article brought up more questions necessarily than answers, one of the things that I was left with was how throughout the history of the church, we have identified people that either we didn't like or nations that we didn't trust as being this mysterious Gog and Magog. So, for instance, um, the Goths of the 4th century were deemed by some early Christians as being Goth and Magog. However, the Goths came and the Goths went, and they did not serve as the Gog and Magog of Revelation. In the 7th century, the invading Arabs who overtook uh, Israel and conquered Israel were believed by some to be this mysterious Gog and Magog. However, they came, they went, and still didn't fulfill what was shown to be uh, the mysterious Gog and Magog. The Mongols of the 13th century, the same thing applied to them. The Turks of the 17th century, and even various popes have all been identified as this mysterious Gog and Magog. Throughout the article, and I'll let you read that on your own, I I give some conclusions that I think may address who Gog and Magog are. But one of the things that I have concluded is that we must be very, very careful addressing Russia or anyone else for that matter as being this mysterious entity from Revelation, Ezekiel, and Daniel. One thing we do know, no matter who Gog and Magog are, God will be completely victorious over this entity on the day of Armageddon. The wonderful truth is that no matter who this entity is, God is victorious. And if we have Christ, then we are on the winning side. Just something to consider as we had this theology thought on this edition of the Bellator Christie Podcast.
Hi, I'm Dave Baggett. I'm the director of the Center for the Foundations of Ethics, previously called the Center for Moral Apologetics, at Houston Baptist University, which in this fraught cultural moment of eroding moral foundations, exists to explore the ultimate questions about ethics. What explains intrinsic human value, for example, or what accounts for authoritative moral obligations or essential human equality or basic human rights? We aim to foster a community of scholars from an array of disciplines to delve into these questions with care and rigor. In the process, we hope to highlight the evidential significance of bedrock and axiomatic moral truths when it comes to matters of the human condition and ultimate reality. In June of 2022, we will be kicking off our certificate program in moral apologetics, a four-course sequence on the history of the moral argument, a course defending moral realism, a course defining and defending theistic ethics, and a course that reveals the shortcomings of secular ethical theories. So check it out on the HBU website and at our own website, moralapologetics.com. Have you ever wondered about the Christian faith, but have become bogged down by difficult terminology? Are you a Christian and faced doubts and you didn't know where to turn? Maybe your faith has been challenged and you don't know how to respond. Or perhaps you desire to learn more about how to winsomely defend your faith, but you do not have the time nor the finances to enroll in seminary. If any of these situations describes you, then consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics. This book confronts the challenges facing the Christian faith, but does so in a way that is accessible to everyone. The Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics is available in softcover, hardcover, on the Kindle, and Nook. Consider purchasing a copy of the Layman's Manual on Christian Apologetics from your favorite bookstore today. <laughs>